Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. We all have people we look up to. Generally, these are people who we consider more experienced, smarter, more poised. We aspire to be like them. They're wise. But what is wisdom? Is it the ability to make good choices? To stay calm? To be successful or give good advice? And can we all become wise? Does it just take a lot of practice? This week, science journalist Stephen Hall talks with neuroscientist Andre Fenton. Hall is the author of Wisdom, From Philosophy to Neuroscience, and in this discussion from the Rubin Museum of Art's Brainwave Festival, Hall and Fenton deliberate what it is in our brains that makes us wise. So I don't know where to begin. Um, should we start with healthcare? Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about blogging on uh, whether Obama was actually wise on the basis of how he brought this to fruition. Um, I was thinking of just starting to talk how I got into this subject because that, that will, it will bring us into neuroscience. Uh, um, it didn't start that way. I got a call from uh, my editor at the New York Times Magazine in the fall of 2006 um, asking me if I wanted to contribute uh, an article to a special issue they were doing on the baby boomer generation as they were growing old. Um, and I thought that was an interesting invitation, so I said, sure. And I said, what did you have in mind? And my editor, whose name was Vera Titunic, said, uh, we, we've heard there's uh, wisdom research and we'd look, like you to look into it. Um, so uh, to be honest with you, my reaction was my heart sank when I heard, <laughs> heard the, the word wisdom paired with the word research, because it's not a, an obvious pairing in a lot of our minds, especially if you write about hard science. Uh, so or I was if very you do dubious, hard science. Or, or do hard <laughs> science, exactly. And you probably would have the same reservations. But I ended up doing some of the research, uh, looking at some of the research, uh, which had grown out of psychology. And what I discovered was that I found it really engaging that people were talking about doing research on issues like making decisions in our lives, you know, the choices we make, um, how we go about making these choices, how we decide what's important. Um, and the thought that you could attach science to those very big questions and very human activities uh, got me kind of interested in the topic. So despite my skepticism and despite my reluctance, uh, I decided to dive in a little bit. And uh, I ended up finding a little bit of science for the Times Magazine piece, and I think a lot more science for the book. Yeah, so I've, I've read a lot of the book, and I have to congratulate you. You know, most people studying what we call neuroscience <clears throat> or psychology are not studying wisdom. They're studying components of wisdom. And you've done a really masterful job of collecting that set of knowledge or those sets of opinions under the umbrella of wisdom. And as you point out, most of the, the researchers there would not confess to be studying wisdom. And in fact, I'm, I'm, still, I'm, I'm still not sure what wisdom actually is, but we can identify many of its components and, and, and look to see how the brain uh, manages that. So you've certainly thought about it um, hard and you've looked at various people's definitions of it, but what, what would you say is a good working operational uh, way to cartoon wisdom? Well, there are two, I think there are two good starting points. Um, uh, Potter Stewart, the, the US Supreme Court Justice, 
his definition of pornography is actually also applicable to wisdom mm -hmm. in a way. He said, I don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. <laughs> and I think that reflects this intuitional sense that we all have that we kind of know wisdom when we see it, even if we would be hard pressed to kind of sandwich it into a definition very, very easily. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. We have a sort of a community idea, at least in part, of, of what it uh, entails. Then the other component, uh, there's another starting point for me, which is uh, Robert Nozick, who's a Harvard uh, philosopher, uh, wrote an essay about wisdom. He basically said, wisdom is knowing what's important. And the essay goes on and qualifies that and defines it and stretches it out a lot. Um, but I think that's a really interesting starting point, because if you think about that, there are a lot of interesting neural processes that are behind what is important. Uh, uh, as Andre knows, I'm sure, um, there's a lot of work now in what's called neural valuation, sort of how you establish, establish the value of a choice before you make a decision. It's a really tough mm -hmm. problem, I think you would agree. Uh, and we're really closer to the beginning of it than to the end. Um, but that's part of it, knowledge, how we gather knowledge, how we perceive a situation. Yeah, how we sift through it. So, exactly. so it, it's, a, it's a great starting point as an experimentalist, if you will, to start with something you can actually study. And yes. what's very clear is that animals and people make decisions, and they make decisions on the basis of information, typically. Right. And what's, what's intriguing about a lot of, uh, of work that has been directed at decision-making are two competing notions. One is that we all make decisions in sort of the same way using the same neural circuitry and that this evaluation happens mysteriously, if you will, almost unconsciously at, at times. And the <clears throat> information after the evaluation is sort of sent to the decision-making right. circuitry that says, you know, A versus B, and it always follows the rule exactly. and chooses the one that has the higher valence. And that's perplexing, because I would like to imagine, okay, I feel a little bit uncomfortable about that, but I would like to imagine that when I ponder a, a situation and I want to come up with a, let's even imagine a good decision, versus, you know, much less a wise decision, that it's not so simple as I've boiled it down to an A versus B, but there's a lot of research that, that suggests this is right. how uh, the, the process might, might operate. So where is the wisdom? See, uh, well, I think the wisdom is actually upstream <clears throat> of it. What Andre is saying is basically once you have uh, neurally encoded values in your brain, your brain is going to, it's almost an automatic decision. It's almost like an algorithm. It's going to arrive at the decision that, you know, that has the highest value. But what I think is interesting is upstream of that process, and there's a lot of things that funnel into that the uh, attachment of value to the decision and the choices. And it involves memory, it involves prior experience, it involves knowledge, it involves emotional tone and, mm -hmm. and emotional state in general, but also probably the emotional tone of the moment when you're making a decision. I think all those things are coming in and being integrated prior to the, the, all that gets funneled into the establishment of value, and then the value is established, and then you make the decision. Now, interesting, since you brought this up, when you read the papers that describe a lot of this work, uh, the word that often appears is idiosyncratic and subjective. That's right. So um, 
scientists realize that there's not a fixed value for anything, but that we all bring these idiosyncratic and subjective kind of values to these decisions that we make. Uh, and I think one of the interesting questions about wisdom is can you shape, tune up, hone in some way the, the values that you're attaching to things before you make the decision? Yeah, so let, let's explore that idiosyncratic <clears throat> uh, notion. What that is used to describe typically is that if you looked at a particular brain and what it's doing okay, when it's making these evaluations, each individual brain looks like it's operating somewhat differently. Different parts are active. Um, there are certain core features, but the details are all rather different. And so that what I love about that, since the best thing about brains for me is that they store information from experience, it it's, speaks to the very, you know, very likely and, and true notion that your experience is what is shaping your brain and shaping your ability to make these value judgments. And so when it comes to wisdom, it, it would seem that what is wise for you may clearly not be wise for me. And it's very, very subjective and based on, on you know, context, experience, and, and such. And that's what it's, it's beginning to look, at least it looks that way uh, when, when we start peering in that window. It's, it's interesting because it's very context <clears throat> dependent. Um, Tim mentioned intelligence at the beginning. Um, one of the distinctions that some of the original wisdom researchers made between intelligence and wisdom is that if you're testing for intelligence, there are correct answers, and you know if you miss it, you're wrong. But with wisdom, there are no right answers. And the, the notion behind that was it's very contextual, so that what's a wise action in a given situation might not be a wise action in another situation. Uh, it really depends on how one adapts to change. And one of the things I tried to do uh, in this project was to um, kind of go back, as the original psychologists who studied this, um, they, uh, the psychological school that did this in the 1970s and 80s basically grew out of gerontology because they were looking for positive things that could be attached to aging after decades of research suggesting that the only, you know, it was only physical and mental decline that was associated with aging. Uh, and then there was this movement in the 70s, let's see if we can't find something positive. Yeah, like wisdom. And wisdom. wisdom happened to, <laughs> happened to <laughs> leap out at them. Um, but what in th uh, uh, so what they went back and they would read the you know the Hebrew Bible they read uh, Socrates and Plato so they read all the traditional philosophical texts and the traditional uh, theological texts and so on um, and and then try to define or get a sense of sort of what the psychological process and uh, attributes <coughs> of wisdom were um, and I kind of used that as a starting point for my my neurological view of this, and I would look for congruences rather than differences because mm -hmm. there are a lot of differences in the in the definitions. Um, but there were things like uh, emotion regulation, which has become a huge uh, mm -hmm. uh, subspecialty in neuroscience now. Um, decision making, an another field that's really exploding. Um, compassion, which interestingly enough has lent itself to uh, neuroscientific uh, exploration and explication in very interesting ways, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, humility, patience, this idea of weighing immediate versus uh, delayed gratification and rewards. And there's neuroscience being done about those particular choices as well. In other words, how your brain is acting when you're doing these things. Um, uh, moral uh, reasoning and decision making. Um, 
altruism, which again has become a, a major area of neuroscientific interest in the last 10 years. Um, and this notion of dealing with um, uncertainty, with change, with unpredictability, with uh, ambiguity, um, which is something I think you subject some of your animals to in their various experiments and, and how, you But know, we're not studying wisdom. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, but the idea was that, the, but these are things that I think that are yeah. congruent through a lot of people, even though there are subjective uh, aspects of wisdom. Uh, but these things seem to line up in a lot of definitions of wisdom, and they seem to contribute to, uh, if not wisdom, a, a, a higher order cognitive processing of experience as it's happening and, and dealing with it. Yeah, so <clears throat> I would love to be studying wisdom, actually. But it's obviously very vast, but you'd, you'd sort of wish at least when you look at some of the instances of who, who is wise, and your book goes through uh, many examples, and they're simple people, right? And some they demonstrate, are. many of them, their wisdom through simple, singular acts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Often social, though. Yeah. In fact, most of the examples that you give are social, yeah. where there is a complex situation a set of competing aims, typically, um, very often limited information, mm -hmm. and surprise, you know, an appropriate response that is compassionate, um, caring, very often decisive, okay, and definitive is, and how that happens, I'm sure everyone here would love to know, and I, I submit, you know, any neuroscientist who has, has ever thought about the brain from the perspective of trying to understand themselves and their thought processes, would love to know this. Mm -hmm. So, how do we approach? <clears throat> how do we approach that? So, you you raised it. I'm interested in the very same things. Uh, one of the ways we try and understand part of this process is by creating ambiguous situations, where animals, little rats, have to make decisions, if you will, about how to interpret the world. We create. Uh, contextually ambiguous or at least contextually contextual situations that have two competing interpretations and what we see at least if you look at the electrical activity in a particular part of the brain is that the brain doesn't like to deal with both things at the same time mm -hmm. okay? it's very very good at managing information along one stream okay? or along another stream. It can switch rapidly between the two, but it never likes to keep these two things running uh, uh, parallel. And one gets the sense that uh, managing all that competing information to make wise decisions has to involve in some way parsing out what is relevant, what is irrelevant, Absolutely. and that seems you know, across the board to <clears throat> to be almost a definition of a wise action, at least. Yeah. A wise action almost looks like somebody who's capable of ignoring mm -hmm. you know, all the irrelevant stuff. And there usually is mostly irrelevant stuff in this. Yeah. Know, there's a, a, a little kernel. And um, brains, happily, human brains and uh, mammalian brains, at least from, from my study, seem to like to deal with one thing at a time. Uh -huh. um, very bad at, at doing many things at, all at once. Yeah, and that, seems to, that reminds me of the word discernment. I mean, it's basically you know, what you focus on, what you eliminate, 
And I think there's an editing process that goes on in terms of what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. Um, you, also, you didn't quite um, allude to this, but I think there's also a component of habit in terms of um, if, if you encounter the same situation again and again and again, and it certainly is true of animals, and I think it's probably true of humans as well, uh, you kind of get into a rut of reaction, an automatic reaction. Um, and I think there's work that suggests that it's much harder to change or adapt or uh, recognize and then uh, adapt to a new situation if you've been sort of in a, in a rut of another behavior. Um, and there's neurological reasons for that, but it's, I think it's interesting to suggest that it happens in humans as well. It happened to me about uh, <laughs> two hours ago. <laughs> I came home, um, I uh, went into my bedroom. I, uh, I think I got a, uh, I considered changing my jacket, but I didn't, and I left. And uh, on the way here, I found out that our bed had been removed. <laughs> and I had not noticed I'd walk right past it. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, <clears throat> we just moved and we were getting a new bed, of, right, right. <laughs> all of that. But um, yeah, this is very typical. And really, the, the um, mattress lying on the floor just did not exist right, for me. Right, because um, you were not it, expecting it, it uh, not and, to be there. And, it, yeah. and so, Part of being wise, I imagine, is also being aware of change when it's important. The bed was trivial, so right. it, it really made no difference. Right, it's I, not I, a, big, a big life decision. <laughs> so it wasn't uh, the bed is there unwise <laughs> action. But um, yeah, that seems to be uh, part of it, mastering one's uh, tendency to focus on particular things that one is familiar with and one happens to expect. And half of the game um, in making wise decisions is to be sensitive, it would mm -hmm. seem, mm -hmm. to other things, things that might be unusual. And again, the problem is how do you find, how do you decide or discern what is unusual and irrelevant, mm -hmm. as hopefully my bed being gone, and uh, what is unusual and you know, very salient and, and important for the circumstance. And wise people, at least people who make wise decisions seem to be very good at uh, incorporating that. Well, I think there's another thing they're good at that's actually related to this. Um, a lot of people get upset when things don't go the way they expect them or that the experience has told them it, it, things should be. Um, and so this whole issue of emotion regulation comes into play. Um, and Emotion regulation is another way of saying emotional <clears throat> resilience, being able to rebound from negative, you know, sort of unexpected negative emotion, uh, negative ex experience, adversity, and so on. Um, and it's, it seems to be a very important component of coping. But I think it now probably has a big uh, uh, role in that discerning pr uh, process because if you're, if you're not thrown off by the unexpected, I think you're able to discern better. And some of the interesting work in emotion regulation has suggested that, that um, there's a very nice study out at Stanford, which is unusual in this field, A, because it compared older people to younger people, which uh, in most uh, brain scanning experiments especially don't do. Most of the MRI experiments that you read about in your paper almost on a weekly basis are done on 20-year-old college undergraduates from a very narrow socioeconomic. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, background, uh, so whatever that says about brain function, and it says certain things, 
but it also probably leaves out some things that we haven't really paid attention to. Um, but anyway, in the Stanford study, they actually bothered to look at both uh, old and young, and it's a longitudinal study, which means they started with the same people, and then they keep following them at 10-year intervals. So they're actually seeing changes that may occur over, over the, the process of aging. And it's been going on for 20 years now. Uh, but the interesting finding is that the older um, uh, people seem to process uh, emotion in a different way. They seem to be less uh, affected by negative events, adversity. They seem to rebound from it more quickly. Um, they see this in psychological measures, which are a little bit softer probably than hard science, but they also see them in brain scans, where they've, they scan the brains of both older and, and younger people as they're exposed to adverse uh, information and see how their brains react to negativity. And the older people seem to rebound quicker. Now, one suggestion and one possibility is that it may actually be, just be due to uh, mental or uh, uh, neural decline with age. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's conceivable, and I don't think that question has been answered. It, it, that would Convenient. That would be the answer we hope would not be true, but it, it's possible. <clears throat> but the other possibility is that um, there's been this acquired experience and learning of how to deal with things. There's probably some cognitive... Uh, inputs of sort of control going on that's been acquired over the course of a lifetime. Um, and, and there's, there's a, a separate body of work, which I talk about in the book, in which uh, older people just seem to be better at cognitive problem solving, especially in terms of problems involving relationships, the kind of things that come up in sort of everyday, everyday problems. Uh, so there may be something there that these things change, but I, I, I just want to get back to the point because I think discernment, the thing you talked about, is, is very important. Um, but, but these elements that I kind of reductively examine in the, in the sense of wisdom, they all kind of resonate against each other. They're all, they're all informing each other. So uh, decision-making, memory, um, uh, compassion, any of these things, are, they're, they're inflected by emotional regulation and, and how good or how bad it is. So let, let's talk a little bit about how emotional regulation might, might work from a, a neuroscientific viewpoint. So there's a lot of work um, pioneered really by Joe Ledoux, but um, at NYU, a colleague of mine, but a substantial body of work now uh, that says that there's a particular region of the brain called the amygdala that is involved in processing information with an emotional content. That doesn't mean processing emotions per se, but uh, processing information with an emotional content. And what seems to be the case is that activating the amygdala causes a bunch of virtually automatic behaviors. Okay? Uh, fear, cause my heart beat, auto autonomic changes, make my heart race, make my sweat glands go, um, uh, uh, mobilize my use of glucose so that I can escape or punch somebody <coughs> and you know, be enraged rather than calm and, and, and such. And this is automatic, right. okay? And so show me something that's frightening, show me something that's exhilarating, and when my amygdala has free reign, there are a whole series of, of behaviors that are generated. And this is terrific if you need to escape from something, if you need to, to act quickly. It might even be terrific if in some instances where a wise action is required, but 
one tends to think not. And that, that's the neat part of emotional regulation. There's another part of the brain, um, the prefrontal cortex that most researchers, um, I tend to not agree with, with the, the conventional view there, but most researchers believe the prefrontal cortex, and I would say other parts of the brain with the prefrontal cortex, seem to be more cogitating. They seem to manage information in more complex ways, and they're slower, slower okay? exactly. much slower. Right. Okay? And so there's this neat tension between uh, discernment and, and, and consideration and evaluation of information okay, that the cortical part of the brain is managing. Mm -hmm. And this, you know, I think of it as almost a youthful, <coughs> um, spontaneous part impulsive. of the brain, impulsive part of the brain. And that tension needs to be managed somehow if, if one wants to get through the world. And there are a couple of ways of getting through the world. You can be crippled by or, or paralyzed by too much deliberation, and you can also be you know, obviously too impulsive. And striking that balance seems to be the, um, the, the key. Mm -hmm. okay? And so what's very interesting is those two parts of the brain, just like all parts of the brain, interact with each other. And there's right. very nice research, um, especially done with animals, showing how the electrical activity in the amygdala is in many ways controlled or modulated by the electrical activity in other parts of the brain, for example, the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal, exactly. And um, they work, even in rats, which I don't know are wise and, and, and <laughs> such, but they, they work, they tend to work in some form of synchrony. Okay? And so the fantasy then is that through experience, you store information, these neocortical regions, that gives you insight into how to evaluate the world, that gives you um, insight or at least experience in what's normal, mm -hmm. okay, what's abnormal, so that as information comes in, you filter it according to one's personal experience. Okay? And th this deliberative part of the brain, therefore, can grow efficient. Mm -hmm. okay? And um, if, if not wise, at least um, informed mm -hmm. about patterns of experience in the world. And those two parts of the brain can, if you will, uh, make value judgments and evaluations about how to control action. Right. So that's the, you know, from what I think we, we can consider good neuro, solid neuroscience, um, how one imagines brains are controlling our, our, uh, our actions through the world. And so yeah, it seems very clear that in order to be wise, one, it would help to have a lot of experience. Okay. Um, interestingly, John Cohen, who you probably know or know of, is a, a neuroscientist at, at Princeton. Um, we had lunch uh, one day and while, while, while I was working on the book, and he coined just on the fly, it's not a scientific term, it's more of like a working metaphor over lunch, the term meta-wisdom. And his thought in meta-wisdom, which is actually not unrelated to what you were just talking about, is this idea of um, there are these two, two different impulses in play, or these two kind of centers of, of uh, uh, motivating action, one of which is very automatic and fast, the other which is much more cognitive and slower. Uh, in conversation, because the wiring suggests, and Joe mm -hmm. Ledoux has worked out a lot of that wiring to show that there is this conversation between them. Um, and 
John makes the point that, you know, if you think of wisdom, and he doesn't do wisdom research like no, no, no neuroscientist, <laughs> yes, no neuroscientists actually do uh, wisdom research, but he said, um, you know, the real trick is knowing which, which uh, part of your brain is serving you best in a particular situation. So it may be the automatic part, as you suggested, that in certain circumstances is actually the right answer. Um, but in other situations, the, the cognitive, the, the slower part may actually serve you better. And, and cultivating the sort of experience that allows you to know which, which one is, is offering you the wisest neural counsel, as it were, in the face of a decision that needs to be taken, um, is, is, is sort of the, the level at which wisdom becomes meta. So I thought it was kind of a useful metaphor for thinking about that. Um, the other thing I want to mention uh, uh, that what you just said reminded me about, um, and I'm sure it's come up here in other conversations uh, on other occasions, is the neuroscience of compassion, which um, uh, a scientist at, at the University of Wisconsin, Richie Davidson, I think in particular has, has done some very nice work on. Um, and the notion, there, there are two parts of this. One, that there seems to be a neural circuitry uh, that he's been piecing together that's involved with com uh, compassion meditation. He flies, as you probably know, these mm -hmm. Buddhist monks um, in from Asia. They do a series of, they, their, their brains are um, measured electrically uh, and also in MRI scans as they're doing compassion meditation and they notice the changes in the brain as they're doing this. These are, these are expert meditators. They're the equivalent of, you know, there have been neuroscience ex uh, uh, scientific experiments on the cab drivers of London for their sense of direction and knowing where they are because they're, they're expert at it. Um, these are expert meditators. And what they've found is that, the, first of all, the brain, uh, when they're uh, measuring the electrical activity of the brain, it clearly changes when they're meditating. Um, there's a, um, a circuitry, again, that, that uh, uh, Richie Davidson is still working out, but seems to have three components of compassion, one of which is uh, just the perceiving another person's suffering or condition, uh, which it, when you think about it, understanding another person's state of mind or point of view in a larger metaphoric sense is, I think, a really important component of how we deal in the world and how we interact and I think contributes to wise behavior, just understanding uh, the point of view of another person. That's a component of it and there's a particular brain re region that seems to be active in that part of it. There's a part of the brain that's active in terms of um, somaticizing or feeling the other person's suffering, as it were, um, as, it's, as it's happening, um, sort of embodied mm -hmm. in your own body. So you're feeling the same, same pain or whatever that, that someone else is doing. Um, again, specific part of the brain that seems involved in that. And then there's a third component, um, which people don't normally associate with compassion, but, but Buddhists certainly do, which is action. That is, it's not enough just to perceive suffering in another, but to try to uh, alleviate it in some way or try to address it. Um, and in fact, they find a heightened activity in these brain scans in the part of the brain that, that is responsible for taking action. Now, it's still, you know, this is, these are early days in all this stuff, and, and MRI has its limitations and so on, but I think it's really fascinating, A, that the circuitry is being worked out, and B, the, the, the implication behind the meditation idea is that by repetitive activity, by repetitive mental exertion, it's kind of like the equivalent of exercise to build up your muscle. You know, you can build up this muscle a little bit and it actually changes the function of it. 
Uh, and I think that ultimately and possibly can apply to other cognitive traits that sure. we have. And that's so a really what, powerful. What's thing. really fascinating and I, and I think beautiful about that is if you look at the electrical activity that they can record from the meditating uh, a monk is there's a particular signal that appears w rapidly once the meditation begins. And the way neuroscientists think about that signal, I'll give it a name in a moment, is um, that it binds information yes. across different regions. So let's just take a, a, a step back and uh, look at the brain for a moment. The, the brain has different territories, it would seem. You know, back here seems to process uh, visual information. There's a different piece that seems to process auditory information, another piece that seems to be specialized for processing uh, taste and, and various sensations. Other pieces seem to be uh, devoted for controlling muscles and representing the uh, body and, and therefore feeling uh, touch and, and such. Okay? And all of these areas are connected to each other. And they're all presumably stimulated by any particular experience. It's very hard to just have a visual experience of the world. All of your senses are, are uh, uh, awake and available. And so what is neat about um, the meditating monk, and I've, I've recently been doing um, EEGs of myself, and I don't see a lot of this <laughs> signal in them. Disturbed by it, <laughs> um, is they get this fast gamma. It's <laughs> Apparently, <so. laughs> um, they get what's called gamma activity. Gamma it's a very fast um, electrical oscillation, which, from for theoretical reasons, and, and if there's a fair bit of experimental evidence of this. What gamma seems to be doing is setting little windows of processing time, into which. Um, little computations can be placed, and it's something like setting a, a metronome or clock, a conductor in the brain, so that different parts of the brain can integrate with each other and work together. And so the amazing thing to me is that if you looked at a, a, a meditating monk, okay, you don't see alpha waves these or, or um, uh, decorrelated activity, what you get is this very vastly correlated brain. And it suggests that this brain, whatever it might be doing, is acting in a very coordinated, very tightly organized manner. And these gamma signals are huge. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're, really, they're, they're really, really big. Um, and you tend not to see gamma. In fact, one of the beautiful things about gamma is there's even a controversy in, um, in neurology. If you can record gamma on a normal person's brain um, or, or scalp, um, the notion is that gamma might actually be mostly muscle artifact. Well, the neat thing about the meditation is the, the practitioner is sitting very still. Still, exactly. Okay? And so it, it gives one, at least gives me, a fair bit of confidence that these signals, these very coherent signals, are telling us something about how a brain is when it's at least um, uh, compassionate or at least at focused and sensitive. The brain tends to be well-coordinated, very well-organized, 
across the 100 billion neurons that are in there. And in fact, uh, Davidson makes the, likens the gamma oscillation, which obviously is a very particular electrophysiological phenomenon, to the panoramic awareness, which is kind of the terms that the monks use when they, when they reach the state of meditation, where they feel this, this really broad kind of um, compassion that's, that's extending out in all directions. So it's, it's, it, it, it's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a verbal metaphor for this very particular scientific and neural phenomenon that seems to be very consistent with each other. So it's, uh, it's really Yeah, no, uh, to me, uh, what's again intriguing is of most of brain, the brain oscillations, we understand how gamma is created at a nuts and bolts, you know, neural transmitter and, and, and uh, how neurons are interacting level. And this, given that this is so important and we know so much about how to generate it um, from at least a, a, a single cell or groups of neuron level, it really makes the possibility of understanding what the brain is doing and how it is operating in these very special moments, uh, it seems very tenable and plausible. And the cool thing about how that all operates is instead of creating a brain that is just generating activity, what gamma is a reflection of is very strong inhibition mm -hmm. of brain activity. Um, that's that's it, its signature um, uh, feature. What it's doing is it's saying, shh, okay, now you can do something, shh, now you can do something, shh. Okay? It's, it creates pockets of silence mm -hmm. for neurons mm -hmm. so that the appropriate neurons, the neurons that are most stimulated, most appropriate to discharge, tend to fire. At least that's the, the general thinking about this. And these guys make a lot of it. Well, I, and that's the really cool thing to me is if you think about the, the mirror, the mirror, the, the, the practice that the repetition, that the effortful exertion of this mental energy is actually translating into these kind of neural changes that have such a dramatic effect, um, I think it is a portal to thinking about, um, you know, I think the, the, the 21st century is going to be about mental exertion the way the 20th century we became so physically conscious and physical <coughs> culture became oh, such good. a big thing. Um, <laughs> I, I think we'll have a better sense of how to do that. I mean, I don't think it's around, right around the corner, but I think that these things are suggesting that practice, that um, exertion, mental exertion, focus, these focused mental activities can uh, actually take advantage of one of the brain's most amazing uh, uh, um, qualities, which is this plasticity, that it is changeable, that it can be shaped by experience. And That's right. When we, you say we talk about brain and it being plastic, well, the brain is made up of a bunch of cells, really. Um, and those cells seem more or less self-organized. The most interesting ones, in my view, are the neurons. Okay? And neurons don't do that many things. They're very simple elements, but there are a lot of them. And one of the cleanest and clearest things that most neurons do is change how they communicate with other neurons in an experience-dependent manner. Okay? So the really fascinating thing to me, um, and I try and remember this at all times, is that my experience is changing my brain. Exactly. Okay? It's really changing my brain. 
this experience has changed my brain and changed all of your brains for better or worse. There's nothing you can do about it. And reading changes your brain. Okay. Every, everything Living you yeah, changes, changes your brain. brain. Yeah, so exactly. you may as well choose, and, and that's what, what this is suggesting. You may as well choose to live wisely, or, or if, if not wisely, at least uh, with some discrimination, because it's going to change your brain. You know, this, I, this would never rise to the level of a gamma oscillation, but, <laughs> but um, one of the things that I found myself doing in the, in the course of actually doing the original magazine article, which really got me interested in the idea of wisdom, was this kind of stopping and thinking. It, was, it just was a habit I started to develop after I started doing all this reading. Uh, you read about wisdom, you start thinking about how it applies to your life. You, you face any of these myriad, you know, problems that crop up every day that we have, and some negotiate some interpersonal issue, a family issue, a school issue, a work issue. We all have them, they come up every day. And I just got into the habit of just stopping for a second and saying, well, let me think about this. What would be the wise thing to do here? Now, that's not meditation, but I kind of refer to it as armchair mindfulness in the sense that I would just stop myself long enough to think. And I think it became a habit of, de of deliberation in a funny <clears throat> sense. Um, again, it's not a, 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 obviously a formal form of meditation, but I thought it was a really useful exercise. And I, and, um, I think there's something to slowing down, which is incredibly hard in modern society now. Um, and having that quiet moment, which is incredibly hard with our cell phones and Twitters and everything. But I think it's more important now than ever, because I think there's even more information that we're discerning and sorting out, and um, it's getting tougher to find the, the thread of what's important and what we need to know, so. And a lot of it, most of it, is really irrelevant to the purpose at hand. And, exactly. And that's really the game. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.